Thank you, Danny, for asking me to come. When he asked me what to speak on or told me the, the assigned topic of what is the gospel, I immediately, in fact, we were standing there and I said, 2 Corinthians 5. And he said, yeah, go. So if you have your Bibles, please uh, turn to 2 Corinthians 5. If you don't have your Bible, please repent and, uh, <laughs> and look on the, with the person next to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I do want to talk to you about what is the gospel. And the focus that I want to make is it really, and I know I told Danny verse 21, but really I, I probably fibbed a little bit. We're going to look a lot at, at verses 14 and 15 and verse 21, but you can't separate this out. If you've read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, or as you read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you'll, you'll notice that it has this word repeatedly, these two words repeatedly, for and therefore. For grammatically um, in discourse analysis is it's a ground. Whenever you see four in scripture, he's giving you the reason why he's just said all that he said before that. Here's why I'm saying this. Therefore is a response to the ground of what we should do. And boy, when you look down through this chapter, it even begins with the word for, for we know that if this tent, uh, that this, that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed. We have a building from God. And the older we get, the more grateful we are about that new body. Some, well, <laughs> when you get to be my age, you know, I'm at that age where I, I don't think I'm old, but I'm not young. You know, uh, I remember when I was not young anymore. It was in my 40s. I was looking at our deck from the outside. It's an upstory deck, you know, and I had to get up there. We didn't have stairs up there. I was going to have to run around and crawl through the house. And I thought, I can do this. And so I, I leaped off the side of the hill and hit the side of the deck. And I thought I dislocated my hip. And at that point, I knew I was not a young man anymore. Okay. But we're looking for that. So, so I digress. Let me just tell you what this passage is. I, as I started to outline it, I just, there's too many points. There's like eight points there. And if I said, we're going to look at eight points today, you would all start sleeping. James would be flipping through his Greek cards. I mean, you guys, I, I would lose you pretty quick. He's already back there at the couch. I know what you're doing back there. You know, uh, and, and so, but, but as I thought about it, I thought, well, how can I trim this down to just a few? The fact is you can't because 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is a series of truths that just cascade one after the other, each leading to the next truth. And I believe hopefully in looking at these truths, we're going to see what is the true gospel. And the first one, which seems rather obvious, and I'm going to do the least amount of time on this, and that's in verses 1 through 10. And that is just the inevitable appearance of yourself and mine before the Lord Jesus Christ, that after this this life that I know now, this body, when this, when this tent is destroyed, verse 1, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands. And notice the permanency. It says eternal in the heavens. Look down in verse uh, 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. This is, this is serious. This is stuff you can take to the bank. So we're of good courage, verse 6. And we know that if while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. You ever hear that out of context? He's not talking about how you live your daily life. I'm going to walk by faith. No, it's about the reality that you're going to die. 
then you better walk by faith in the resurrection and the new life to come. Because the context of that passage is not just to get you through a day and you're struggling. Well, we walk by faith, not by faith. I don't know what I'm going to do. That's not what it's about at all. It's all about you're going to die. Okay, you're going to, your tent's going to be destroyed. Mine probably sooner than most of you. Some of you look like you're trying to catch me. But at any rate, it, it's, it's we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. We'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. There's an age where you get that way. Uh, so whether we're at home or whether we're uh, away, we make it our aim to please him. And here's the ground. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So the first truth is, is that you're, you're going to face Jesus Christ in a judgment. As a believer in Christ, you're going to stand before. I know you're, some of you might be thinking, well, I'm a Christian. I thought I'm no longer under judging. You're right. You're not under condemnation, but you're still going to give an account for your life before the Lord. You're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the second, second truth, one leads to another. Verse 11 is our motivation. Knowing, therefore, the fear of the Lord. We persuade others. Now, I know sometimes I've heard arguments that believers should not be afraid of God. I remember preaching this several times and, and somebody coming up to me and saying, we should never fear God. God's our father. He's a, hey, I feared my dad. Anybody else in here? I had one of those dads that he didn't count. He wasn't showing off in front of the kids. One, two. I, he just said something once. And the second time was a look. It was like. Do you want to see Jesus? I can, I can arrange it. You know, I was like, and so, okay. You know, that was a, you know I, I feared my dad. I loved my dad, but I feared him. You know, and, and, and by the way, when someone says you shouldn't fear the Lord, somebody should have told that to the early church. Look over to Acts chapter 9 and verse 31. Because the early church understood this. Of course, they had seen some rather miraculous things. Ananias, the fire fallen dead. I mean, they'd, they'd seen some things that would have put the fear of the Lord in them. But, but it's not a bad thing. Notice it says in verse 31, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking, it says, in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Folks, you got to... You got to think about that. I want you to memorize that. I want you to reflect on that. I want you to wrestle with that. What does it mean to walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit? That you're, you know, I, I think of Aslan the lion. You know, what he, what, one of the, I, I read the books, but I like the movies better because, you know, I choose a comic book over a book. But, you know, I, I like pictures. I like visual. I, I like when he says that they, he's a good king, but he's also, he's still a lion. You know, he's still dangerous in that regard, and knowing the fear of the Lord. Um, by the way, if, if we are not supposed to fear the Lord, somebody should have informed Jesus about that because he was the one in Matthew chapter 10, if you don't mind turning there, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, when he sends out those 70 as his witnesses, for the very first time, and he gives them the instructions, or not the 70, the 12, as he sends them out. He says this in verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. He says, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If you... If we had more time than just the time allotted, I'd take you to Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2 and verse 3. It's where that famous passage that Jesus quotes following his temptation when he preaches in Luke. And it's the, the fear of the Lord. He, he, he delighted, it says, in the fear of the Lord. 
There's something we got to learn how to do that. What's the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is motivation. Because when I, when I finally get it around my brain that somehow I'm going to stand before the Lord and I'm going to give an account, guess what? That means David's going to stand before the Lord and give an account. And I had David in a class last year, so I know he has some stuff to be worried about. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's... <laughs> no, he passed. Barely. But he passed, you know. Yeah. Oh, I'm not supposed to reveal that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, yeah, you'll give me that. He signed up for the class I teach this semester, so we're good. The, the point is, when I realize that I've got to stand before the Lord, guess what? So is Ryan, so is Danny, so is David, so is Esther. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she was in my class last year, too. Uh, yeah, yeah. We, we, we are all going to stand before the Lord. And so, so this inevitability of judgment, this, this fear of the Lord leads to not, it goes from uh, inevitable appearance to our motivation. The third truth is our work. It says we persuade others. We, we persuade. Well, how? That leads to methodology in verses 11 through 14. Notice it's with integrity, but what we are is known to God. We, we're honest about who we are before the Lord. When I say something to you about something I am, I'm aware that God's with me, and I, he's not with me as in he's giving me the word. I'm, he knows what I'm saying. If I try to fudge it or make myself look a little better than I am, God always has a way of bringing some humility back into my life, and you'll learn that as well. That, that there's an integrity, that there's a transparency too. Notice what he says, that I hope it is known also to your conscience. Um, one thing I can tell you, having been a pastor for 33 years, is the temptation after being a pastor for 33 years is to kind of raise some walls, to kind of build a little bit of a bunker, to kind of be safe. Because truthfully, after a while, if, if you cannot handle criticism, you should not be studying to be a pastor or any kind of a leader anywhere. Because that's just part of the deal. That's, you get a lot of encouragement. But I can have 50 people walk by me and say, oh, you're such a great guy. You know, one person walks by goes, you know, of all the sermons I've heard, I'd have to say that was the most recent, you know. And then they <laughs> kind of walk on, you know. Guess which one I'm... I'm pondering late into the evening, you know. Um, I, is this recorded? It is. Okay. I'm going to say it anyways. I had a board meeting <laughs> recently where they made a comment about my weight. And I'm like, I'm aware of more than you are of what my weight is. If I, if I, started, if I went to one of those guess my weight booths, they'd get it wrong because I'm much heavier than they guess me. <laughs> Somebody said, you look nice today in your jacket. You know what this is? A covering and a shield. I normally don't wear it. But Monday I was told I was fat. I'm like, I know that. How did I get to fat? Oh, humility. <laughs> Transparency. The danger of putting up walls and putting up barriers to try to keep people away so that they won't hurt you. Listen, I know there's risk-reward thing. You've got to always land on the side of transparency, of openness. And when they say something like that, I, and it's got to be more than what I usually do. Usually when they, somebody makes a comment about my size, I usually come back and make a joke about my weight so that I can kind of hide the fact that really it does bother me. I mean, I went home kind of discouraged and a little bit hurt. And then I made the mistake of getting undressed to go to bed, and I'm looking in the mirror. <laughs> you are fat. <laughs> okay. 
280.6 pounds this morning, you know, <laughs> I'm just like, you know, I, I just like, oh, you know, and it, it hurts. It, uh, but do I allow the hurt that I experienced from that to hinder a relationship, maybe particularly with the one that said something to me? You know what I mean? It, you can't minister that way. You've got to be open. You've got to be. I, I remember this uh, quote uh, late Monday night. You never know how much of a servant of Christ you are until someone treats you like one. And then you'll find out, am I a servant or am I really just in charge so that I can be in charge? And it goes back to motivation. It goes back to what's going on in your heart. Why are you doing what, are you, what you're doing? What's your, where's your integrity? Where's your transparency? Where's your humility? Verse 12 for we're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, but not what is in the heart. For if we're beside ourselves, he says, it's, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. There's, there's, a, there's a humility. And humility is not coming to a place where you think less of yourself. It's coming to the place, I think it was Boner, or somebody said, it's where you come to the place where you don't think about yourself at all. That it's for God. You're, you wake up this morning, and I'm not thinking about what did so and so say about me. And you know, you, if you go down that road, then pretty soon you're like, you can't go to a basketball game because every time they huddle, you think they're talking about you. <laughs> and, uh, you got, you got to be. You'll get it later and go. That was really funny. Um, you, you got to come to this place of, of humility where you just don't think about yourself at all. You think about the Lord. You think about what he's doing, about what the people are and where are they starting at and where they're going to end at. And how are you going to help them along in their journey to follow Christ? There's compassion, compassion. Look at the first part of verse 14. It says, for the love of Christ now, I'm using the ESV, which is the extra spiritual version, um, but uh, it says controls us. The NIV says the, what, uh, it constrains or compels us? Compels? In New King James, that say constrains us? Well, it's compel as well. One of them says constrains us. It's the idea of, of pressure. It's sunico. It's, uh, it's the lay hold of, to hold together, to constrain or compress. Think of you when you were packing to come to Montana Bible College. And you were jamming clothes in here. I could tell by your look. There she was. She was soon echoing her clothes into that bag. She was constraining. She was squeezing. She was pressing it. It, it kind of pushes you in this mold. And notice what it is that's got a hold of you. Notice what it is that's putting this pressure on you. It's not some reward system. Oh, I'm going to go to hell if I don't do it. No, it's the love of Christ that constrains, compels, controls me. Now we come to the heart of the message, our theology. And the theology is really twofold. Our theology, when you think of what is the gospel, the first thing I think of is its substitution. Look what it says in verse 14. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. That's the, th there are so many passages that you could say, that's the gospel. But can I say to you, that is the heart of the gospel. That Jesus Christ died on a cross in substitution for me. That Jesus Christ died for me on the cross. And my faith in his act and my faith in what God did to honor that act 
in pouring out his Holy Spirit in my life of, of taking me, who someone who was dead in trespasses and sin, just like all of you were, and he made me alive just like he made you alive. That, but the gospel, the basis for our salvation is the substitution of Jesus. Jesus died for all. And there needs to be, I believe, a single-mindedness in our ministry in the sense that the focus is Christ alone. Christ alone. Why? Because he was the one who paid my sin debt. You see, the substitution is not just for my deserved punishment. It's also for my standing before God. Verse 17, jump down. says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Looking down, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's, it's not just paying the penalty. It's, it's a new standing. I, I love Hebrews. Let me see what time. How are we doing? Good. Hebrews chapter 9, if you will. Hebrews chapter 9. We could really read most of the book. But let's just look at a few verses. Hebrews 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal Redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works, notice it says, to serve the living God? That's pretty good stuff, right? Let me tell you my favorite one. Hebrews 10, one of my favorite, favoritest. <coughs> ever watch Brian Regan? It's like grape and jelly. It's grape and strawberries. They're both, they're both favorites. But this is most favorite, all right? Hebrews 10, 14. Verse 11, let's run at it. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Um, I like the NIV. For by one offering he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. <laughs> Man, folks, you got more than just forgiveness. You got, when God looks at you, if, if Ryan's guitar was in tune, I would sing a song to you, but it was terribly out of tune. But it was, uh, but it's, uh, it's an old Wayne Watson song. His gaze always passes through rose-colored glasses every time he looks at my heart. And through love's forgiveness, through purity's fire, I am my God's desire. Anybody know that song? His gaze always... All right, never mind. Uh, I was going to let you sing it. 
No, it's substitution. It's, it's Christ died for me. Christ died in my place. And now I can have a perfect standing before God. Do you realize that eternal security is not built on a, a clever arrangement of all the different passages that speak to it? No, it, it boils back to the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because when he died for your sins, how many of them did he die for? Are we going to go back with the Catholic view and have Jesus on, on all of our crucifixes because every time you sin, he dies? That's simply not true. He died once for all. And all of my sin, and, I, and it took me, I, I've shared my testimony before, but it took me 12 years as a believer in Christ before I realized that I was secure in Christ because I didn't, I didn't think I was. I thought if I sinned too much, I would lose my salvation. And I sinned a lot. Just like Danny, so, or you. Well, back to our theology. This is truth number five. It's not just substitution, but verse 15, it's also service. It's also service. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for, who for their sake died and was raised. Now, do you see how these truths just cascade one upon the other? You're going to stand before the Lord. Knowing the fear of the Lord, it gives you the work. You're going to persuade men. The methodology is integrity, transparency, humility, compassion. It's the, your theology is one of substitution and service. And, and, and then the very next, the next truth that we cascade onto in verse 16 is our perspective. Our perspective. Because if I'm going to live not for myself, but for him who died and was raised... If I'm going to live properly for him, my perspective has to change. And that's found in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. How easy is that to do? How many of you have ever looked at someone and thought, hmm, God can't save him. He's too far gone. Um, we don't want to admit that. But have we ever done that? How many of us have looked at someone and thought, oh, wow, there's a, there's a great example of a Christian. And yet come to find out they're not even saved at all. You say, how do you know they weren't saved? Well, because they came up to me after a service and they said, Pastor, I'd like to receive Christ. I'd like you to talk to me about how to receive Christ. And I said, get out of here, here, kid. And, and he goes, no, seriously, I want to I come to faith in Christ. I said, you're already a Christian. How did I know that? Well, because he looked like one. He looked like one. He was well-dressed. He was clean. He was, carried a Bible. He'd been in church for a couple of years at that point. But the guy never, he never accepted Christ as his Savior. I didn't know that. I just wrote him off as saved. Why? Because I looked out and I regarded him according to the flesh. And I've also looked at guys that had more metal hanging out of their face and appendages than you would want that I have in my toolbox. And they uh, and, and, you, and, and then come find out they know the Lord and they love the Lord. And you're just it kind of blows you away. How do we why do we do that? Why do we look according to the flesh? Listen, Paul says we, we don't do that anymore. And then he does. He says something that's kind of a tell. He says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Do you know what I believe that verse indicates? It's a, it's a branch of theology that I'm trying to start and trying to find people that agree with me on this. Uh, my wife's thinking about it. Um, 
But I actually think that Paul didn't just show up in Acts and all of a sudden holding coats for guys to stone Jesus. And then he goes, hey, what's going on here? We're killing this guy who says he's the son of God. Oh, I'll hold your jackets. Go get him, you know. I actually think because of Paul's relationship with Gamaliel, who was on the Sanhedrin, I, I have a theory that Paul knew Christ before the Damascus Road. But he regarded him according to the flesh. Now, I have no other support other than just this flimsy little verse. So if you're going to go out on this branch with me, just realize it might snap off. So, <laughs> but there we are. But he did say it. He said we. He didn't say they did. He didn't say they regarded Christ according to the flesh. He said we did. We regard him thus no longer. And then there's another therefore, another truth. It's a, it's a new occupation, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The reconciled become the reconcilers. We, we have this ministry, this, this occupation that gives us a message. Verse 19, that is Christ, that is in Christ God was reconciling the word to, world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Isn't that good news? Aren't you glad today that, uh, I realize aren't is not good English, I'm sorry. Aren't you glad? Are you not glad? I'm, let me just say it this way. Are you glad that Jesus Christ does not count our trespasses against him? We're not talking about falling short sins here. We're not talking about the everyone falls short of the glory of God. We're talking about the trespasses. God says, don't you do it anyways. And yet the message we have is, no matter how rebellious you've been before the Lord, you can be forgiven. He doesn't count your trespasses against you. And he trusts us, again, repeat, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That's our message. Um, We're making, God's making his appeal through us. The end of verse 20, and I know I skipped a part of it, but I'm going to come back to it. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, because of his love for us, he made him. Jesus, to be sin, who was perfect, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And it's a truth that God took all of your sin and he put it on Jesus and he put Jesus on the cross. And God took all of Jesus' righteousness. Remember the Hebrews 10, he's made perfect forever. He took all of Jesus' righteousness and he put it on you. The great exchange. That is the gospel. So, twofold need today. For the unsaved, I want you to believe that Jesus died in your place. For the saved, I want you to be so gripped by the love of Christ <laughs> that you cannot help but share it. Now, notice I skipped over a little part in verse 20 where he says, We are ambassadors for Christ. That bugs me in nearly every translation. Because in nearly every translation, it's a noun. But in Greek, it's a verb. It's a verb. The alarm that says, stand up, speak up, and shut up. All right, here we go. It's not a, it's not a noun. Ambassadors is a verb. There's only two translations I've found that get it right. The New Century Version and the Contemporary English Version. They both say, we have been sent to speak for Christ. Say, so what's your point? 
My point's this. Ambassador's not your title. It's your work. It's not a name badge for you. It's what you do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that for our sake, you made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we thank you for this simple good news. The simple news that when Jesus died, therefore all died. I died on the cross. It was symbolized in my baptism when I was buried with Christ and raised in the manner of his resurrection from the water. And uh, Father, I thank you so much for your salvation. I thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. I pray that every one of us today would become those messengers of reconciliation, that we would embrace the ministry of reconciliation, that we would literally, as your word tells us, implore, we beg people on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And help us to be and do, not not as a title, not as a position, but that we would actually be your ambassadors. We would speak for Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. In the future, one quick way you can do this. I love being a pastor because part of it is you meet people. And when you meet people, after a while you're talking with them. And I like to let them talk. And I like, you know, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I let them talk. And sometimes they swear a little bit. Sometimes they swear quite a bit. And, uh, and I like when they swear a lot and they haven't yet asked me what I do for a living. Because then they're, they're accustomed, well, what, what the blank do you do, brother? You know, and I go, I'm a pastor. And it's just so funny to watch their reaction. <laughs> they just, oh, they're, they're replaying in their mind. What did I, what did I say? What did I, and then sometimes they start confessing sin to you. They, you know, they, but but, but I, I say, I, I just go right from there. I say, I love being a pastor because I get to tell people that God loves them, that Jesus Christ died for them, and they can have a brand new start. And just see where it goes from there. God bless you guys. Because God loves you, Christ died for you, and you can have a new start. Thank you. God bless you.